0: Welcome to the Frontlines of Democracy, a sub-series of GMF's amazing Out of Order podcast that tells the stories of the individuals and institutions working at the forefront of democracy. My name is Jonathan Katz. I'm a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund, and I direct the front lines of Democracy Initiative. I'm glad to join the Outer Border team to guide you through each episode of this sub-series. I spent the last two decades in and outside of U.S. government at the State Department, USAID, and on the Hill in Congress, supporting strengthening of democracies, human rights, and civil society across the globe. My experience combined with the German Marshall Fund's longstanding support for democracy and civil society across the transatlantic space places us at the front lines of democracy with our partners and now with you. In the virtual world we find ourselves in today, and yes, I am speaking from my attic in Washington, D.C., we know the political landscape and space for democracy is being challenged by the minute, hour, and day. The front lines of democracy are active, at times messy, and in some cases dangerous. On both sides of the Atlantic, the underlying values of democracy are being tested by populist forces, external influences, including authoritarian governments in places like China, Russia, Hungary, and elsewhere, and the pressures of weakened economies and technological advances. Old and young democracies and nations with democratic aspirations are striving to construct and protect strong and resilient democratic institutions. Add the impact today and near future fallout of COVID-19. And while well, you get the picture, the front lines of democracy looks different today than a few weeks ago. In two weeks, it will be different again. The story about democracy around the world in 2020 is a story of collective action and about the individual. A single voice, a single vote, a single protest, or a single reform. We will try to tell the stories of the different and competing forces working at the front lines of democracy, whether it's via analysts, civil society, or from the perspective of a government official. We will also focus on specific themes, focusing on how forces including corruption, democratic fatigue, disinformation, and real-time crises affect both emerging and established democracies. Democracy is inseparable from and constantly influenced by the steady drumbeat of global occurrences. When we first conceptualized this podcast, we could not imagine we would be facing the COVID 19 pandemic and the unimaginable changes to everyday life and society in its wake. We will be recording the show remotely, yes, in my attic and elsewhere, with colleagues on lockdown in countries across Europe and the globe. As the pandemic continues, We will discuss the impact of the virus on democracy, including both big picture analysis and the personal stories of people affected by the pandemic spread. How can civil society adapt as governments across the globe take unprecedented steps to combat the spread of this deadly virus? Are illiberal forces using this crisis to consolidate control or advance agendas at the expense of democracy and rule of law? And how will the collective nature of our fight against the virus affect democracy across North America and Europe in the future? These are some of the questions we hope to explore through the front lines of democracy. And as always, we welcome your feedback, participation, and your suggestions. Let's get started.
1: No dictator, no combination of dictators will weaken that determination.
0: really lucky today to have Brock Behrman with us. Brock is the Assistant Administrator for USAID's Bureau for Europe and Eurasia. He was sworn in in that position in the current administration in January 2018. And he brings uh, a, you know incredible amount of experience, both from the public and private sector, but also leadership positions in local legislature in, in Rhode Island at USAID, FEMA, working in the U.S. Department of Interior as well. And as I mentioned, the private sector, where he spent more than 20 years as a entrepreneur and launching uh, small businesses. So Brock, I really wanted to just turn it over to you and and ask you, how has uh, the Europe and Eurasia Bureau at USAID pivoted to meet the challenges of the coronavirus in the regions you're focused on? And also further afield into some of the other spaces in Europe, Eurasia. One of them is Italy. And I was wondering if you might be able to talk about what you might be doing there as well. Sure.
1: Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk and tell you a little bit about what we're doing because uh, it is 24-7 and the team in the Bureau has really stepped up to the plate and worked 24 hours a day, really. I mean, when I tell you that they work around the clock, I am not kidding you. We are answering phone calls at two in the morning. We're answering emails late at night. We're getting up early. We're just really responding as a team to this, crisis, and we're putting everything else aside in terms of making sure that we, we get the job done. USAID and the Bureau for Europe and Eurasia is intensely focused on responding rapidly and effectively to this deadly pandemic. There is a, a fundamental challenge in which we are working to help other partners, friends, and allies in the region when they need it most. And uh, since this is a new global disease that knows no boundaries, knows no borders, We're also defending our own country, our own families. And, you know, we will do whatever it takes to stop this coronavirus, both here in the United States and abroad. Thanks to our virtual IT platforms, all USAID staff, both here in Washington and in the field, are working quickly to shift uh, to a telework position. You mentioned it earlier. We are working around the clock to maintain the uh, uh, continuing operations, and we've done that, I think, brilliantly. Uh, The the team has really come together during this deadly crisis to work together to make sure that we are providing the assistance necessary uh, to the country's We are also acting very quickly to inject much-needed support. You mentioned some of the countries that we don't normally work in to support our friends and allies, specifically Italy. Uh, The U.S. government's new 50 million commitment will help improve Italian citizens' access to essential health care and assist them to recover from the impact of this pandemic. USA will expand and supplement the work of public international organizations, non-government organizations, faith-based groups, and we're going to be responding to the pandemic in Italy and mitigating its social and community impact. We will also be purchasing health commodities that are not required for the U.S. domestic response and work to support Italian companies engaging in developing and producing medical equipment and supplies for COVID-19.
0: Those are really certainly important things to know. And, and support for Italy as a as an important ally and partner is timely. And it sounds like, you know, there's a challenge here. There's a sprint to address the immediate. And then there's going to be the longer term, which is, you know, more the marathon of the fallout of this. And I wanted to ask you maybe to go into some more specifics about some of the funding announcements that stand out, that maybe highlight the work that's being done, that has been done.
1: Let me just say I'm I'm incredibly impressed on how we're able to work virtually 100% telework to get the work done, right? And I'm also very impressed about the, the coordination. You know, the State Department and USAID have been working very, very closely. And you know the important role that the coordinator plays at the State Department. And we've been working very closely with the coordinator. I literally talk to him almost every day to make sure that we're, we're providing the right assistance to the right countries. And, and I mentioned Italy earlier, right? But USA and State Department also announced new funding for a number of post-presence countries, including Bulgaria, Romania, and Montenegro. Basically, in all in all, we're working very closely with our colleagues at the Department of State and, and frankly, all of our implementing partners. What, is, what does that look like, right? Just to kind of give you an example of, you know, mm-hmm. how we're working to adapt to its operation, implementing remote and telework operations. And by the way, we've done this most importantly to protect the employees, the safety of all those people here in Washington and also abroad. And we're also doing our part with social distancing and helping to flatten the curve ourselves. I mean, you've seen some of the things that we've we've talked about on social media about flattening the curve and doing our, our, our best both here and abroad. Uh, number two, we are working directly with our host countries and governments in a Assessing risk factors and preparedness, so that USAID offers strategic targeting, uh, targeted assistance. And then, lastly, under uh, former Administrator Green and now current Admi- acting Administrator John Barza, under their leadership, we are now moving swiftly to redirect programmatic focuses and resources to help uh, our partners meet this challenge.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing how quickly you guys have have shifted into gear, and USAID is really well placed to deal with natural disasters. And in this case, a, a pandemic uh one of the things that you you and others particularly at aid is leveraging resources and partnerships you talked about your partners on the ground countries where USAID is working and obviously their involvement in you know what's taking place right now is critical to be able to work with countries civil society to work with other partners but can maybe you just speak a little bit to
1: how important it is to work with other leading donors absolutely thank you and this is an extremely Im- important point as we both recognize this is a global pandemic there is uh, no one agency or one country that can tackle this alone USAID is coordinating with international organizations the donor community foundations the private sector and others to ensure effective and streamlined support to this global effort to combat uh, COVID-19 so we're we've been engaged Jonathan uh, with all of our European partners both in Brussels and in the field to ensure our efforts are to stop sp- the spread of COVID-19 and complement and build upon each other uh, the decades-long partnership we have built with our counterparts in the eu and in the private sector in the global development community are really the backbone of our work which you know with with all the stakes as high as they are jonathan we intend to fully capitalize on those relationships and uh, we'll we'll pull out all of the stops to make sure that we do just as as um an example, USAID Strong, and ongoing partnership with our, our legacy foundations formed from proceeds from USAID-supportive enterprise funds. You know a lot about the enterprise funds having worked here at USAID in the region, and they are run entirely by business leaders. It's now paying dividends. The work that the America for Bulgaria Foundation, ABF, the Romanian-American Foundation, RAF, are both using their considerable resources to respond to the immediate crisis in partnership with the American Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. Embassy, and other businesses, the ABF has initiated a matching campaign to support local hospitals in Bulgaria. Uh, ABF will match all donations up to 60,000 U.S. dollars. And the RAF has launched a fundraiser for equipping a local hospital in Romania with kits and equipment for COVID-19 tests. And to date, they've raised over $250,000. And then one last example. In Georgia, USAID is supporting the government of Georgia and the private sector to respond to COVID-19 outbreak by working with local agricultural packing companies to shift to producing sterilized packaging and locally produced uh, surgical masks for Georgian medical personnel and across the country. So I, I think it's important that folks understand that we're, we're working with the private sector, we're working with the non, non-government organizations, uh, we're working with the governments to make sure that we address the needs, and we're helping uh, you know, retool and refit these, these uh, organizations, or, or in this case in Georgia, the company, to provide uh, much-needed supplies.
0: Great. Thank you. And those, those are really great examples. And I think highlights that when you say legacy programs that, that USA and the U.S. government and frankly, the American people for, uh, I think, sometimes forgotten for, uh, for, you know, 20 plus years have been supporting and working with these countries. And in some cases, it's been on health related support that has helped bolster those those systems. And I think I'm just reminded in this whole process that the the U.S., in in this case, has been there, will be there uh, for these countries. And I think it's a little bit lost in the immediate how much commitment there has been, and
1: I think on a bipartisan basis, too, for so long. I do think that the funds and foundations are critical to our success on the ground, right? You know really better than anyone how fundamentally important those legacies are in the countries where USAID no longer provides assistance, right? The the work that ABF and RAF are doing not only is incredible, but the, the time that it – I mean, they were literally working – day one on this. I was in touch with them, so I want to say almost a month ago, sending out a request, and they had sent back some information about the, the great work that they're already doing. They are uh, already providing that, that valuable assistance when USAID is no longer there. And so that legacy is carrying dividends well into the current situation, but will also help moving ahead. When this pandemic is over, we're going to have uh, an economic um, circumstance, which will also have to be addressed. And of course, as you know, the f- funds and foundations or the foundations are private sector oriented, and that, that's really their main mission. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and I think yeah, that that last point on the economic fallout of what's taking place now and in the future I know there's been a heavy emphasis, obviously, on, on focusing on strengthening economies, economic resilience. But it's also good, ultimately, in the end, for U.S. trade too to have stronger partners to trade with. And, and I think all these pieces and having those pieces in place that are part of uh, of this effort are going to be critical again for the for the sprint, the immediate, and then for the marathon of. Of what's going to come next?
1: Well, first of all, I I also want, you know, we've been talking a lot about our post presence countries. And, you know, this week the State Department and aid announced the third tranche uh, of COVID 19 response funds, uh, which brings right now the total of the U.S. government's global commitment to nearly 508 million. And in terms of what that means for Europe and Eurasia, that's over $74 million. And I think that's very important that, that people understand that we're, we're responding and we're responding with real resources. Of the 11 partner countries in Europe and Eurasia, all of them are getting some type of assistance. Uh, they were all considered, uh, if you will, at-risk countries that will receive emergency assistance during this pandemic. And as I mentioned, this assistance will also reach several countries in Europe uh, beyond just our, our presence countries, like I said, Italy, Montenegro, Bulgaria and Romania, but all of our presence countries are receiving assistance. And while each country has a unique risk factor and needs, USA assistance will help tackle steps that are most critical to slowing the and ultimately stopping, if, if I if I might, Jonathan, the spread of this disease. And I think it's worth just mentioning a couple of quick uh, bullet points in terms of you know what what are these organizations doing? What are what is USA doing? And you know we're preparing laboratory systems for large scale testing. We're supporting technical experts for response and preparedness. We're bolstering risk communications. We're uh, working. Uh, on event-based surveillance, making sure that we understand where the cases, where the hotspots are, if you will. And, and we're trying to, you know, really centralize the communications so that we can ad- uh, really address the risks as they stand right now.
0: It's It just highlights, I think, again, I, I go back to this, which is that the U.S. has been there, will be there. You know, when others might be leaving, the U.S. is often the one that comes in to stay to help move the the ball forward and helping Countries, whether it's on the economic side or on the on the sort of the governance side, I know that you already had existing programs on the ground working in multiple spaces, and you have those uh, those resources to be able to bring to bear. And I think that's lost a little bit in the conversation about how the United States is best helping countries.
1: If I could, if I could just add, and I I, I mean to interrupt, but I will tell you, I'm so passionate about what we're doing and how we're doing it and how impactful this is. Um, but I will tell you that even before the the pandemic, before COVID-19 became the crisis that it is now, you know, what USAID put into place working with the private sector, working with nonprofits, um, I'm really proud of a program that we set up last year called the Hearts of Europe program, which is a regional initiative with the uh, with Rotary International. And basically what we did was we went to Rotary and we matched dollar for dollar with the Rotary International Fund Foundation rather how, how to provide assistance at the local level. And so we're exploring ways to engage with local businesses, municipalities, organizations to respond to COVID-19 and on the community level. And so although that's happening now, we were thinking through how do you work with the private sector? How do you work with, with other people? Because you and I both know we can't do it alone. We have to involve um, not just other people, not just other governments, but other organizations and the private sector to be successful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I want to sort of just swing to an issue that I think you have focused on. It was something that was an a important issue for Mark Green as the administrator, and I'm sure the new new leadership as well, which is the journey to self-reliance. And this region has seen a lot of democratic and economic progress, but it's also going to be impacted greatly by the pandemic in a way that could push some countries in an opposite direction. And they and this is where people are more vulnerable. Uh, and just want to ask you, how focused are you and USAID on ensuring that countries remain resilient, maintain progress even in this moment, and are able to address the economic, political, and other challenges? And, and I, I say this too, because we also see countries impacted both by internal and external challenges including malign influence.
1: Jonathan, we are laser-focused, and your question is critical. So let me be really clear. Democracy does not get to be put on hold during this pandemic. Governments are no less accountable to their citizens during this time. And in truth, this pandemic represents a critical test uh, for the contract between democratic governments and their citizens and all of the citizens that they serve. Governments are on the front line of stopping this spread disseminating accurate information on the virus and the government's policy responses, safeguarding human rights in the face of this crisis, and making plans for how to help citizens and businesses recover are critically important. We remain intensely focused on safeguarding the hard won gains of our partners, making sure that we pay attention to what all of the governments are doing to make sure that one, they are economically stable, two, that independent media is an essential component to holding public officials accountable to their citizens during this crisis. And um, it's, it's not a luxury, but an absolute necessity that we, we pay attention to independent media and making sure that they um, are holding their elected officials accountable. Countries all over the world would be tested through this pandemic, Jonathan, and I'm extremely proud of the work USAID and the Yeni Bureau is doing. And I have no doubt that we will be uh, ultimately successful. And at the end of the day, these countries will be in a stronger position to meet the unprecedented challenges and, frankly... Because they are more resilient beyond the journey to self-reliance, as uh, former administrator Green has talked about and as uh, our acting administrator John Barza has talked about, uh, is a critical component. And I think that um, we will see stronger countries result after this pandemic has passed. Thank you. I think that that um, that point is really
0: important and an important message to uh, to keep sending out and also the the idea or the challenge of when you have these vulnerabilities to ensure that the public has access to accurate information, not disinformation. And this approach, which you I think you highlighted, is the role of enabling citizens to make informed decisions and to keep making informed decisions throughout the process this challenging time for many of them. And I just wanted to ask you if you had any last thoughts you wanted to add to this important aspect of, of information, of ensuring that that it sees the light of day when people's lives are at stake.
1: As I said, we see access to local independent fact-based reporting as uh, among the top priorities, not only for the Bureau, but for any democracy. The pandemic underway only heightens this reality. The fact is, malign actors have been waging uh, disinformation campaigns and manipulating the media in the regions for years. And uh, this is nothing new, but right now it's critically important that we focus on this. And unfortunately, their efforts have not diminished, even in the face of this global pandemic. But the fact is, um, we are taking on that challenge and we are going to meet that challenge to make sure that we push back on this disinformation. Local independent and fact-based reporting is both in demand and essential for audiences to receive trustworthy, accurate information. It increases awareness for citizens, uh, and it pushes back on disinformation efforts. At USAID, we are leading these uh, efforts in this space, and we will continue to do so. In the intermediate term, uh, all of the local media partners are responding in the same way to this crisis, both through fact-based reporting and exposing disinformation efforts that are inaccurate through their reporting. And they are also serving as watchdogs to monitor, expose, and and prevent abuse from public uh, funds or malicious actions by elected officials. We've got some some great examples that I can go over. Yeah. In Georgia— USAID's partner for International Society for Fair Elections Democracy has analyzed the top 10 disinformation narratives related to COVID-19 by two pro-Kremlin news agencies on Facebook, which is one of the most widely used platforms across all age groups in the country. Uh, these stories are being shared and spread widely through uh, throughout Facebook groups and thousands of users. Also in Georgia, USAID's uh, Media for Transparent and Accountable Governance, uh, which we call MTag. Uh, will help 14 media outlets in the region's outside of Tbilisi, disseminate information on COVID-19 and will translate into Russian, Abkhazian, and accession languages to ensure that the populations living in those occupied territories receive reliable information on the subject. In addition to MTag is is also helping the Ethics Charter, an NGO operating in Georgia, uh, which will provide a guide and weekly podcast to help journalists to report on COVID-19. And as media activity focuses on providing skills to journalists, the activity will not be developing any health message but working to ensure accurate and effective reporting.
0: I think that the main thing is that, you know, these are great examples. They also, they're reaching sort of the messaging or independent media is, is reaching a lot of people and will continue to do so. And so we're hopeful We we look forward to hearing more about some of the expansion, whether the programs expand or what new might come in to support, you know, the, the process uh, that's underway before we, we shift. I just wanted to see if there was anything else that you wanted us to leave with.
1: I, I do have something I would like to add, um, as you and I have talked about in the past, our European Democracy Youth Network, which uh, involves young political and civic leaders throughout the entire region. A priority of mine, uh, not just the regional program of Eden, but also youth programs throughout all of our programs uh, in all of our missions throughout all of our sectors, whether it's uh, economic development or democracy and governance. We are looking to integrate programs that involve youth and in, in leadership roles. And I just want to take an opportunity to uh, really congratulate and recognize the work that the European Democracy Youth Network is doing right now and their young people. I don't know if you've had a chance to take a look at their Facebook page, but they've done some remarkable things uh, to date. And they're reaching not just across community levels, Jonathan, they're they're reaching across country boundaries, borders. They're not letting the borders work against them in fighting this pandemic. Uh, they, they've been issuing a couple of public service announcements where the, the, they actually actually had a, um, one about washing your hands, right? And it was really well done where all of these young people are passing, if you will, soap from one person to another. And it's basically showing every country in the region working closely together. And they're also working uh, toward how can they help in their communities, whether it's delivering groceries or helping populations at risk through this pandemic. Uh, I've been incredibly impressed with the, the stepping up of the young people who have been involved with EDEN. And uh, I'm excited that um, they're engaged and making a difference. Well, it's,
0: it's definitely the the timing of having this type of a leadership program for youth and how they, you know, it was fortuitous that you've, you've put this in place because it's actively part of the response, um, as well as other parts of civil society and leadership programs, legacy programs, these different pieces of the tools and, and partners that you have that play a comprehensive role to address the challenge in the immediate and longer term. So it's, it highlights again, just the point of of the reach that USAID has, that the programmatic work you're doing has, and we really thank you for joining us today and, and being willing to spend some time to talk about what you guys are doing, how you have shifted and responded. And I get a sense of one of, of speed, but also um, of a thoughtful approach that is promoting U.S. interest as well. And we wish you good luck and please stay healthy safe. And we look forward to our next conversation with you.
1: Thank you very much, Jonathan. And we are going to continue to be nimble as we help all of our allies in Europe, regardless of the countries we talked about today. We're going to make sure that we address the needs as they arise and make sure that we provide assistance to all of our allies to help them fight and push back on this uh, deadly virus. Thank you very much for the opportunity to come on. I look forward to coming on again and, and talking to you more about uh, what we've done. As you know, we're just, we're just starting the fight. We've got a long way to go, but we're going to win the battle. And at the end of the day, we're going to come out stronger at the end.
0: The Out of Order podcast is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon. Rachel Tausenfreund is the editorial director. Sound design and editing are by Zachary Tarrant. That's all right. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.